Well, North Wake, it is official. I am old. I came to realize it this week somehow. I was talking to some friends this weekend, and I said, I'm going to have to preach for the first time in reading glasses. And they said, don't worry about it, Jake. You've got that huge iPad. Just increase the font. And I said, I tried that. Three words per page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we should pray for my pride that we turn to humility as we begin to study God's word together. Pray with me. Now, Father, we do ask for humility. Grant us all humility. And Father, as we have the great privilege of studying your word together, digging into it, mining it for the treasures that it contains, Lord, we, would, we, we discover the treasures that you have for us with you being the ultimate treasure. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So what is the worst job you have ever had? What job is it that comes to mind? For me, it was probably uh, as a college student, I would work in the summers from May to August in the heat and humidity of Florida, weed-eating these 30-foot deep ditches where chemicals ran down at the paper plant in Pensacola. Eight to 12 hours a day, 40 to 60 hours a week, weed-eating these ditches. But what about you? What's the, what's the worst job you've ever had? And as you think about that job, you'll soon realize that it's probably not the worst job out there. I did a little research, and I'd like to share with you the top five worst jobs. Number five, and there'll be pictures on the screen behind me, is this guy. That's it. Bicycle brick deliverer. That looks terrible. Number four, back hair remover. Disgusting. Number three, deodorant tester. You cannot pay me enough to sniff that guy's pit. Number two, foot cleaning technician. It takes a technician to clean feet. Like, I can't wait for second service. Sam Williams has a foot fetish, and he's probably going to pass out when I show this slide. And then the number one worst job is this guy, sewer diver. I did not know there was such a thing. So see, your worst job is really not that bad. But in today's passage, Peter is going to be addressing people who are in a difficult work situation. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick our study up of 1 Peter in verse 18 of chapter 2, where Peter gives a command to submit to our bosses. He says this. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, 
depending on your translation, that first word there is either servant or slave or household slave. So which one is it? Is this a servant he's speaking to or a slave he's speaking to? Because to be honest, those two words have very different connotations. And so the word Peter uses here is oikotai, which you may be familiar with the word oikos. You're probably familiar with it from the grocery store when you go into the yogurt section and you see Dannon's Greek yogurt there called oikos. Simply means household. So when you buy oikos yogurt, you're buying household yogurt. So Peter is addressing these particular people who are household slaves. And I know when I say that word that immediately there are emotions, there are experiences that come along with that word. But listen to these very helpful words from New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner. When he comments on this word, he writes this. He says, those who are familiar with slavery from the history of the United States must beware Beware of imposing our historical experience on the New Testament times, since slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race, and American slave owners discouraged the education of slaves. He said it would not be unusual for a slave in this situation to be better educated than his master, and that some served as doctors, teachers, musicians, managers, and artisans. Bible scholar Wayne Grudem adds to the conversation when he comments, no English word is adequate, perhaps because no comparable institution exists in modern Western society. But these people were slaves. They were a particular type of slave. They were household slaves. But we have to be careful that we do not interject our historical experience of American slavery upon this situation. But nonetheless, these people were not free. They were under the control of their masters. And soon we will see that they were, some were mistreated in the verses to come. One more thing to note is that Peter in no way is condoning the Greco-Roman system of slavery here. To use Larry's illustration from last week, Peter is walking through a household. And last week he recognizes them as citizens. And he tells them as citizens to be subject to the governing authorities. Here he walks into another room in the house and he notices the household slaves and he addresses them in the current situation that they find themselves in and tells him how to respond to those who are in authority over them. Next week we'll, he'll look around the house and he'll see husbands and wives and he will talk to wives about what it means to be subject and submission to their husbands. So Peter is walking through this house and he acknowledges these household slaves and he addresses them and encourages them and how they are supposed to respond in a way that is pleasing to God. Now at this point you're probably saying, okay, we're going to have a sermon on household slaves which I am not. How is today's passage going to apply to me? Grudem goes on to say this. He says that this was by far the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in the ancient world, which means that the application of Peter's directives to employees today is a very appropriate one. So to bridge this passage to us today, we could say workers, 
Be subject to your bosses with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, when I was a kid, uh, my dad asked me that all too common question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I told him I want to own my own business. He said, well, that's interesting, Jake. Why do you want to own your own business? And I said, so that I won't have a boss. He chuckled. He says, Jake, everybody's got a boss. He said, if you own your own company, your customers will be your boss. And he's right. Entrepreneurs have bosses. Contractors have bosses. Uh, 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 Stay-at-home parents have bosses. It's their kids. Uh, Kids who are too young to have a job have bosses. It's their parents. Students have bosses. It's their teachers. So the question is not, do I have a boss? But rather, how am I doing at submitting to the bosses that God has placed in my life? Do I respect them? He says, with all respect. Not some respect, not most respect. With all respect. So how do we respond as workers when we are treated unjustly or harshly or overbearing? Why is Peter addressing us in this way? What is the purpose behind his command? What's the motivation for you and I to be subject to a harsh boss? An unjust boss. Well, he gives us that motivation in the next two verses. Look at verse 19 through 20. He says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He says, For what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter tells us our motivation is reward from God. He calls this a gracious thing that is credited to our account and he gives us two criterion to meet to get this reward from God. The first one is that we must be mindful of God and the second one is that we must suffer for doing good. Let's unpack that first one a little bit. Being mindful of God. In verse 20, he ends it with, in the sight of God. You know, I was thinking about this thing, being mindful of God, and I was thinking a lot about work this week. And for those of us who work full-time jobs, we work somewhere between 40 and 60 hours a week, right? And I said, well, how much of that is our waking hours? That's 35 to 54% of our waking hours, And you know this thing, being mindful of God. Here, we're meeting and gathering for the church. Obviously, God is here. We see him here. We recognize that he is here. At homes, we recognize God because we're raising our families and our homes in a way that is hopefully pleasing to God, centered on his directives. But at work, God seems distant. He doesn't seem as present as he does in these other situations. So how do we reclaim our mindfulness of God in the workplace? You know, there's this phrase, this Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which simply means before the face of God or in the sight of God. And I know as I'm teaching you this in Latin, you're checking out for a minute. But 
we can memorize Latin phrases, right? Most of us at least learned one Latin phrase when we were in high school. As we were preparing to graduate, our teachers, the valedictorian, taught us this phrase, right? Carpe diem. What is that? Seize the day. So we can learn Latin. Seize the day. I think we need to connect these two Latin phrases. I think we need to carpe diem quorum deo. Seize every day by living it in God's sight. In our works, every day, being mindful of God. God is at your work. Look for him there. Invite him there and allow him to transform the way that you respond to all who you come in contact with, especially your bosses. The second condition that Peter gives us is that we must suffer by doing good. Peter's not talking about suffering for wrongdoing. If you're an employee and you are regularly late, you do your work poorly, you treat others badly, you are insubordinate, any consequence you receive, any suffering you receive is just the normal expected consequences for your poor actions and attitude. Peter's not talking about that here. The reward is not for those employees. Instead, the credit that is made to your eternal account, the reward of God is reserved for those who do good and suffer unjustly with endurance. That's why I started today with the worst job you ever had because submitting is the hardest when the conditions are the hardest. That's when your faith is truly tested. Now I was thinking about who I knew that worked in really harsh conditions, but yet found joy in the midst of those difficult work circumstances. And these guys came to mind. That's right. The seven dwarfs. Think about this. They worked in what some consider one of the hardest work environments, mining. Dingy, dirty, dangerous mines, hard labor, and these guys sang. Hi-ho, hi-ho, right? They whistled while they worked. Right? How could these folks work in such harsh conditions and be filled with such joy? I think the next picture gives us a clue. Uh, That's the other one. (laughs) You see all those sparkly things? Those treasures? They realize that their hard work would result in them obtaining great treasure great reward and then we get to the dopey slide he is just captivated by the treasures that are a result of his work his eyes are fixed upon those treasures and this is what peter started with at the beginning of his letter if we flip back to the first few verses of his letter We read this, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, a treasure, a reward. But this reward is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's better than the treasures that the dwarves were uncovering. It is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. The security guard for our treasure is God himself. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And he says in this, in that reward, in that treasure that awaits us, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, another reward, which is more precious than gold, more precious than anything the dwarves could uncover, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the motivation for us. So Peter starts with our command to submit to our bosses. He then gives us our motivation that God will reward us. And then now he turns to our example, Jesus. Listen to what he says in verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, in verse 9 of chapter 2, it says that we were called out of darkness into the marvelous light oh that's beautiful that's attractive that's captivating and as Christians we're always asking for God to clarify his calling on our life right Peter gives further clarification of our calling as his followers here and he says that calling is to suffer to suffer because the one that we follow suffered and if we are to follow his steps those are steps of suffering Jesus walked a road and that road included suffering for us to walk on that same road we will suffer you see suffering is not a detour on our Christian journey no friend it was the road that we were designed to walk on the entire time And that road leads to eternity with him. This is why Peter says, Jesus is our example. How many of you remember these sheets from elementary school? Right? These were sheets that we were given so that we could learn how to write the alphabet, our ABCs. They were given to us as an example that we were to trace over time and time again until we learned how to write our letters. 
Peter is saying that Jesus is our suffering tracing sheet. He is the one that we are to imitate and trace his life over. And Peter turns to Isaiah 53. He has been meditating on Isaiah 53 and he's pulling that example from Isaiah's suffering servant. Let's read a few of those verses from Isaiah's suffering servant and you will see Peter's language here. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Peter looks at Isaiah's suffering servant and he sees Jesus. He sees the Messiah. This is why when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am, Peter? He says, you are the Christ. So Isaiah's suffering servant is Peter's suffering servant. And Peter remembers that in the heat and pinnacle of Jesus' suffering that he did not sin. He did not deceive. He did not revile. He did not threaten. See, Peter was a witness to those things. And as Peter remembers the suffering of Christ, we need to remember. Remember every disciple that would betray him and abandon him. We need to remember every blood-filled drop of sweat in the garden. We need to remember every false accusation made against him. We need to remember every blow to his face. We need to remember every loogie spit in his face. We need to remember every lash of that whip that tore his flesh we need to remember every blow that pressed those thorns of that crown into his forehead we need to remember every agonizing step of him carrying his own cross to that hill and we need to remember every moment that he hung on that breathing his last breath for us and ultimately we remember that he absorbed every ounce of the Father's wrath for every sinner who would repent and believe in him. And all the while, 
He did not sin. He did not deceive. He did not revile. He did not threaten. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard, hard thing to trace. It's sad to say, but I draw outside of the lines often here. So how was Jesus able to do this? Well, we read in the passage that instead of those things, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He trusted in the perfect judge. And because Jesus trusted his father as the just judge, he was able to say in the midst of his suffering, during the greatest injustice in all of human history, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you trust the Father enough to say words even close to these words when you are in the midst of your greatest suffering? And I ask people that question or talk about how they need to respond like Jesus in the midst of suffering. They tell me something like, well, I'm not Jesus. I'm not God. I can't tell you how right they are in saying that. But they forget about Jesus' humanity. And so it might be good for us to look at another human, a mere human, who traces Jesus' example. Look at Acts 7, verse 59 and 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, it sounds like pretty significant suffering. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? Sounds very close to forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, Stephen is tracing Jesus' example of suffering. The question is, how was he able to do it? How was he able to pull it off? And I think verse 55 that precedes it gives us that answer. Look at verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. See, Stephen was living in the sight of God, being mindful of God. He looks into heaven, the place where his ultimate reward lies, and we know that Jesus and God are our ultimate treasure and reward. And that fills Stephen with the Spirit and gives him the strength that he needs to endure suffering in a way that is pleasing to his God. What would it look like for you to respond in the midst of your suffering at work in a way like this? What responses do you need to work on? What ways do you need to stop being deceptive at your place of employment? What insulting or abusive language needs to cease? What threats, whether in your mind or on your tongue, need to cease? See, church, 
Stephen was able to carpe diem corn deo. He was able to seize each day in light of God's sight upon his life. Now, if we were to stop here and close out our service, we would have a command. Okay? Be submissive to your bosses. We would have a motivation. God will reward you, and we will have an example, Jesus, that we are to follow in his steps. But the reality is that the road of suffering in this life is long, and it is hard, and that most of us will not be able to do it perfectly. So I want to give an example that might help with this. Imagine that I were to tell you that you had to run the 100 meters in less than 9.58 seconds. 9.58 seconds. You can't do it. Only one man who has ever done it, the world's fastest man, Usain Bolt. And it's such a quick race, under 10 seconds, I thought I'd show it to you right here. Watch this video. the world record that is fast you see how he pulls away from the world's greatest athletes at one point his peak speed is 27.8 miles per hour that is five miles an hour faster than Larry's Prius will go (laughs) I don't care what coach you pair me up with I don't care the technique that you teach me to explode out of the blocks like Usain Bolt did. I don't care if you give me the perfect pattern and diagram of every stride and body uh, posture that he has. I don't care if you gave me those cool shoes he was wearing, those track shoes, and traced out with chalk every footstep he took in those 100 meters. I will not finish that race in 9.58 seconds. It's impossible. Only one man has ever done it. The man titled the most natural gifted athlete the world has ever seen. But if you tell me that Usain Bolt can run in my place, if you tell me that I can tag him and he will sub in and he will run the race for me, now we're on to something. Now we are on to something. And this is what Peter draws our attention to next. Listen to these words in 24 through 25. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, in the previous verses, we are called to follow Jesus' example. We are to follow in his steps. But in these verses, Jesus takes steps that you and I could never take. You see, he becomes our substitute. He took the steps that you and I never could. Peter's suffering servant, Isaiah's suffering servant, subs in for us. He runs the race on our behalf, 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your substitutionary work on the cross. Forgive me for my arrogance and ever thinking that I could run this race of life in a manner that is worthy of you. George cited a passage in his prayer, and it's one that I had here today because I think Paul captures this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why in John 19, Jesus, after receiving the sour wine, said these words, it is finished. It is finished. The race is over. It has been won, and you didn't win it. I did. Friend, through faith in Peter's suffering servant, your race is finished. Jesus ran in your place and he finished in the time that you would have never been able to finish in. The time to match was sinless, holy, righteous, and none of us can match that time. So the sinless one took the place of the sinful ones. To him be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Christ's gracious substitution, his great sacrifice, his suffering for you has an intended outcome that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. So how are we to live in righteousness in our workplace? Here's some examples. Don't engage in office gossip. If wronged, show grace. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Share this great news, this great substitute with your coworkers when it is appropriate. Display excellence in your work while being mindful of God. Serve your boss and your coworkers. Be known as a servant around the workplace. Celebrate others' successes. Encourage your coworkers. Be known as generous around the office. Be a man or woman of integrity. And always give thanks to God and others, knowing that none of us succeed on our own strength. It's beautiful how Peter ends this passage with Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 10. He says this, so fitting for our passage today. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. They will listen to my call. 
so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They trace my steps. They follow my example. And I give them eternal life. They have a reward. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He is the security guard that protects them and their treasure. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So church, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, we have a command. We are called to submit to our bosses, no matter how harshly they may treat us. We have a motivation. God will reward you. Your reward from work is not the paycheck that you get every week, every other week, or whenever you get it. That is secondary to the reward that you get from your supreme boss. Third, we had an example. Jesus was our example in hopes that we would follow in his steps. And then lastly, he is our substitute. Jesus took the steps that we could never take. So as the praise team comes and we close our service this morning, you may be here today and as you heard this thing where Jesus is willing and able to run the race for you, you realize that you have been running the race in your own strength. This entire life you have been trying to beat that hundred meter dash in under 9.58 seconds and you never came close and you're tired and you're weary Jesus wants to sub in for you he wants to take your place and run the race that you could never run on your own strength you were not designed to all you have to do is ask him to run in your stead, to realize that you have sinned and that he is sinless and that you want him to do what only he can do and that's take your place and finish the race. All you have to do is do that simply where you are. You can come down front and pray that to him. If you want to talk to one of our elders, they'll be down front. Just grab them and they will tell you how you can have Jesus sub in in your place. You may be here today and you have asked Jesus to run that race for you. He is your substitute. But you know what? The things that we talked about, the example that Jesus gave us to trace at work is not the example that you're practicing in your workplace. This is a time for you to repent of that. Receive the grace that he offers you and then to go out renewed and refreshed and re-energized so that you can follow the example that Jesus gave before you. 
You may be in another situation in life today. You may be running that race well, but you know what? You've been running the race for a very long time. You're tired. You're weary. The suffering is so heavy. This is not just an encouragement to those in the workplace. This is an encouragement to anyone who is suffering. You come. Beg of God to give you the strength that you need to endure this life's race that is filled with suffering. Let's pray.